Good afternoon, I'm Jackie Terraza. I'm the Women's Board Endowed Chair of Museum Education here at the Art Institute, and I want to welcome you this afternoon to what will be a great panel, and to also congratulate you for being brave and making your way to the Art Institute uh, among the churning crowds of uh, blue. Very exciting for Chicago, and also very difficult for events like today. So you are the brave half who made it today of the audience that we were uh, expecting to see. We are delighted to present today's panel discussion, School as Lab, Moholy Naj in Chicago, in partnership with the Illinois Institute of Technology's Institute of Design. Our current exhibition, Moholy Naj, Future Present, which runs, runs through January 3rd, <laughs> is the occasion for this partnership. And of course, I've, I hope you've seen the exhibition. If you've seen it, come back many times. If you haven't seen it, definitely make sure to come back and, and see it. It's fantastic. With our IIT colleagues, we will explore Moholy Nash's lasting legacy of experimental education in Chicago. And this is a legacy that began with the founding of the new Bauhaus in Chicago in 1937, an institution that continues its activities to the present day, as you, many of you know, as the Institute of Design of the Illinois Institute of Technology. So now I will bring on stage today's moderator, Ashley Lukasik, Director of Co Corporate Relations, Communications, and Marketing at IIT, who will introduce the program and our speakers. Thank you so much. Thank you very much um, to everyone at the Art Institute for helping us put this event together. I'm going to stay in my seat um, because these introductions are a little long. Um, so um, we're very pleased to be here tonight um, during the stunning Moholy Naj exhibit. I had the pleasure of seeing the exhibit at the Guggenheim in New York, um, but it's even more thrilling to see it here in Chicago, the birthplace of the new Bauhaus, now Institute of Design, and also the launch pad for much of what um, we associate with modern art, architecture, design, and education um, here in Chicago. Um, so perfect uh, location for us to talk about experimentation in education. Um, I'm especially pleased um, that we have this incredibly accomplished um, and eclectic group of panelists today. Um, first of all, we have Patrick Whitney. Patrick has focused much of his life's work and research on understanding learning. Um, his research on digital learning and um, extending learning across informal and formal environments was funded by the Gates and MacArthur Foundations. Um, having served as uh, the Institute of Design's dean for nearly three decades, Patrick really pioneered higher education and design um, and set the tone for project-based applied learning, implementing a user-centered a systemic approach that is really um, kind of has become standard across design education globally. We have Connie Yowell, who I would um, posit is probably the most well-versed across the entire um, system of education, from policy making to funding, um, her deep understanding of public school systems, higher ed, having taught policy at UIC, um, and your most recent venture as CEO of LRNG by Collective Shift. Um, Connie served as Director of Education for the MacArthur Foundation for 15 years, where she primarily was discovering and funding work by organizations like the Institute of Design um, that were really trying to understand um, how to fix our broken education system, primarily through focusing on engagement around learning, which I think um, is really one of the, the core kind of points of view that, that you'll bring to the table here, but is also shared amongst all of the panelists. Um, so next we have Dr. Melissa Gilliam, whose professional life has been really mostly devoted to your career as one of the leading gynecologists in Chicago. Um, but Dr. Gilliam has extended that work in a very interesting way by founding and directing CI3 which is the Center for Interdisciplinary Inquiry and Innovation in Sexual and Reproductive Health. So it's an expansion of her clinical practice at the University of Chicago. Um, and through the center, Melissa incorporates, incorporates game theory, design, technology, storytelling um, to engage at-risk youth, adolescents in their reproductive health. 
And finally, we have Eric Ellingson, Assistant Professor at IIT School of Architecture. Of all of our panelists, Eric's practice is the most arts-based. It's the most um, interested and reliant on, on space and environment as a mode for engagement around learning, um, something that he calls space activism. Eric founded Species of Space in 2009, and his work has been clearly strongly influenced by the Bauhaus and Maholi. Um, so I'm really looking forward to how Eric can help push our conceptual and experimental uh, boundaries in today's conversation. So with that, I believe you have a short um, experience for us. Right. Um, so we were speaking yesterday and looking for perhaps a common reference point that we could kind of attach to each other, but also something that, that could be common with all of us. Um, and different at the same time. So this is a little experiment that we can experience together. These roots, these words used to share roots in French. Um, um, so if we, what I'm going to ask you to do, and if you won't be exploited in any way, at least not to my knowledge, <laughs> is to close your eyes. Um, and when you think three minutes has passed, when you feel like three minutes has passed, open your eyes. There'll be a timer on. And um, just so that everyone can see when you're done, maybe you could start standing and then just sit down when you think three minutes pass so we can kind of see where everyone in the room is. I'll stop it if it goes too long. Um, and maybe no sort of snickering to kind of destroy what other people might be perceiving that three minutes as. So if I could ask, we'll start on three um, to close your eyes and then open them and Sorry, could we stand up first? Or should we stand up? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. if we could stand up first. This actually helps to get our attention anyway. Okay. Um, so, if we so sit down when you think three minutes has passed and open your eyes. That's the terms. Okay, uh, one, two, three. Okay, why don't we, why don't we stop there? Just, um, uh, it, yeah. Uh, I won't, I'm not going to say much about this. Maybe a little bit when I talk, um, if that's okay. Is that? Do you, okay. I mean, I, well, maybe give us yeah, a, a little, tell us a little, a little bit about how this relates to Maholi, maybe, or just what do we do? <laughs> so, okay. Um, so part of at least how I understand Maholi's experiments and his work is that he makes tangible and explicit something that we tend to relegate to something that's more abstract or conceptual, something like time. How do we use time as a material? Uh, how do we use perception itself? And how we, and maybe as Gutha says, you know, our body is a scientific instrument. Um, how do we, let's say, s slow down and start to understand the kind of environment that's pressuring our perception of space, of time, of something that, you know, isn't just there waiting for us as a kind of neutral container, but something that we actually shape and manipulate um, and, and pressure, squeeze by how we're feeling, uh, if we feel comfortable, if we... Um, um, uh, if we hear others, do we start to question our own sense of what's happening around us? So in one sense, it's, it starts to, I think, at least raise the experience of that as a question. On the other hand, there's, there's, this is used, this comes from developmental psychology as a way to say, you know, as we get older, do we understand, feel time is passing quicker? As we're younger, do we feel it passing slower? Um, do, do people that are, let's say, more creative tend to get it more wrong, or do they get it more right? I mean, notice the way that it was framed wasn't try to, try to get it right by getting it at three minutes, and how we all experience differently something that was happening at the same time around us objectively. And so there's all kinds of reasons, I think, at least this starts to engage with the work that uh, Mahali Naj does, um, particularly just turning something into a material that we can feel, an experiment that we can feel. What we do with that is, is up to us, I think. So, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying to some extent is that there's some value in going through this experience, this experiment, regardless of the outcome, that there are things to be learned in embodying that moment. Absolutely. And where, and where you do this, you start to also, if, if you do it more and more, I mean, I, I will do this for a full day, which gets very strange. You get very good at kind of mechanically becoming an instrument that can calibrate time. But... If you do it outside in a group of people, suddenly you become much more aware of the sounds around you. You become much more, you feel much more vulnerable. Here you become aware of the other, let's say, forces in the environment, particularly sound, maybe smell. Um, so how do we even understand this environment that we're in, this auditorium, um, it, without depending on the visual sense as, as a mechanism through which that understanding happens? Um, 
every time it's different. I mean, I really love to do, I do this over and over again. It makes me conscious of being here, and in a little way, it throws an anchor into a, a moment, and it, and it also, which creates a memory. So there's something physical in that, and you can build from that, let's say, a learning environment, because you've already created a kind of dent or an impression in someone. Um, it's something shared, so the hierarchy gets leveled a little bit. Um, and it's something that you can build a kind of trust space in. This is where I think at least learning tends to take place. This is what we design as designers, our trust spaces. Um, um, I, I will maybe say more about that in, my, in the little, well, actually, I, yeah. <laughs> I want to hear what you all have to say. Um, okay, well, I have a question for, for Patrick to connect, you know, to connect back to Maholi. Um, and his vision to create a laboratory for a new education, um, which is what he said upon founding um, the new Bauhaus, now Institute of Design in 1937. I wonder if you could talk about sure. what he meant by that and how it's evolved. Well, some of you in the room will remember who Mark Golshall was. Mark Golshall was a major art director and graphic designer. Some of you will be old enough to remember those wonderful psychedelic seven-up ads that he was famous for. He was a student of Maholi's, and he would talk. He told me a story about coming out of the dark room, having made a photogram, and talking with Maholi about it as it disappeared in front of them. And neither of them cared that this thing that Mort had slaved over was disappearing as they were talking about it. And what it represented was the type of experimental and trials, sort of like the three-minute exercise you put us through, that is going on now. And the reason that experimentation was so important then and took the course that it did was because of the shift from the, from the agriculture local market village age to the industrial national market age. And um, Maholi's experiments were just incessant in exploring this new social, economic, aesthetic, economic context. Uh, quick example are the three enamel paintings in the exhibition. These are paintings that uh, Maholi called in. He, he called the ge geometric specification and the color specification into a sign maker and had him make these paintings, which now one of them hangs in the Museum of Modern Art and other prestigious collections around the world. What was important about those paintings wasn't just that they're beautiful paintings, but that Maholi separated the specification of them from the execution of them. Before that, when craftsmen made things, they informally linked the specification and the making of it. They specified it by their vision and they, they made it at the same time. And the reason this is important today is because we're going through exactly the same social, economic, um, cultural changes, and we need the same sort of experimentation um, now that took place then. And I think we'll hear from the other panelists about how the experimentation is taking form now. The, um, the important thing about the experiments is they seem wildly weird when you're first doing them. The Bauhaus was not a acceptable school or a conventional school. It was not thought of very well by the mainstream of people. The Nazis closed it. Um, it was always struggling and because it was weird. Right? And the things that you see emerging now are weird too. The, the thing that we don't know is which weird things will end up being the icons 50 years from now and which weird things will be forgotten. So just specifically um, with regard to Maholi's use of the word lab, um, and this is a question for anybody, does that word resonate with you in terms of the work that you do today? So I'll answer it also as a continuation of your note on the historical side and then into today. So in, I taught history of education and foundations of, of education and I'm an educator. At the turn of the 20th century, as we were moving from agriculture into industrial, there was also you know, a, a massive fight around the purpose and what is school and what is education. And so that was when John Dewey was really sort of leading the progressive movement around um, 
what a school is and how we define school. And so for Dewey, it was about creating labs. So the University of Chicago has a, one of the first lab schools was actually at the University of Chicago where he was a professor and that was the founding of the lab school at the University of Chicago. And his notion of lab at that time was really schools need to be a laboratory for democracy. And it, you, it needs to be the place where, where kids are beginning to be, participate in a democratic context and learn how to be a part of a democratic institution. Um, and that notion of school as a laboratory has continued, particularly within the progressives in education up until today. Um, and it, it has shifted phenomenally because we are in this massive transition and this innovative time and sort of beginning to think about what are the roles of our new tools in reimagining what education and learning can look like. So it resonates very deeply. So it's also a term that um, I use a lot in my work. Um, in uh, medicine and also in medical research, you tend to work project by project. And um, what I realized to, in order to work with adolescents is you need um, what we call a possibility space. And so we just use the word lab, um, partly borrowing from science, but also as a place where you can work without um, an understanding of what the outcome will be. And so really a place of experimentation. And that becomes really important for intergenerational learning because um, Typically on a university campus, you have sort of this model of, you know, I'm the teacher I know and I'm going to teach you, but um, especially when you're working across generation, across barriers of um, economics and socioeconomic status and experience, you really got to create a way where lots of different knowledge can come into that, into that space and that idea of experimentation, but also being able to make things as a way of bridging gaps between peoples become really important for us. Um, I, I, I probably, I mean, I'm, I very consciously choose to not use that word. Um, I mean, in the, if, not so long ago, there was an exhibition, if, if anyone remembers, called The Laboratorium. It was Bruno Latour and Hans Olbrist that curated this, and they brought in people like Peter Gallison and, and um, 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 Carolyn Jones and, you know, teams that working from art and creativity to science and history of science. And it just, it, se it seemed to me to have all these kind of connotations that um, it was, was just becoming very popular from an architecture studio, art studio sense. So, you know, I, I kind of went, I went back to this, the idea of more of a field, I guess, which was also, at least in landscape architecture, very popular. But ideas of, you know, Darwin, I mean, everything was a lab in a sense. So, you know, when Darwin can play with something at the size of the scale of an ant, taking a hair follicle and sort of tickling the aphid belly to release a drop of nectar and actually then pull out a, one of his hairs and tickle that aphid belly to try to simulate and reproduce that behavior and then at the same time scale out and try to understand the distribution of something happening at a global level. I mean, that seemed, where's the laboratory in that? You know, you have, the laboratory seems to be a place where you can control an environment. What if you flip it and the laboratory is just a, mo the, the mode of experimentation is carried forward, but the lab becomes any situation. This, in a way, I, what we just did, I say, would start to tip it into maybe what, would, what a laboratory would orient its actions around, its resources, its behavior. And it's probably accountable for a lot more things than um, at least my pra I feel my practice is aware of right now. But In terms of education, I th think you're, you bring up an interesting point. There's sort of lab as place or space and of a particular protocol. Uh, I think the way Maholi thought of it, from my understanding, is that it was a lab as a, um, wasn't so much place or space based, but and a set of activities where you didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Yeah. You, you involved the students in creating the outcome, and the learning was in the creation of that outcome, not in the actual outcome itself. So, but, and that requires constraining a situation a little bit, doesn't it? Because everything, I mean, walking from the, the sub, I mean, the L to here was, I didn't know what the outcome would be either, but I wouldn't necessarily call that a laboratory. I mean, there was something that you have to start to constrain the parameters sure. of to. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think Maholi did that. Yeah, absolutely. He would take the, like the light modulator, one of the great pieces in the show and in modern art, is highly constrained. Hmm what it makes you think of and how it makes you experience light and time is amazing. 
Um, so I want to come back to some of these ideas around uh, creativity and also linking today's conversation back to Maholi, but first um, I want to make sure that we touch on some of the, the larger topics um, pertaining to education. And so, Connie, I have a question for you, which is um, really about sort of, I think, something that we, we're all sort of aware of, that is there's something troubling about the standard education systems of today. I think it's clear to most people that it's not working very well. Um, and you said before that in trying to solve that problem that we're asking the wrong questions. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us what you mean by that? Sure. Um, and I'm trying to link it back to the conversation that we were just having. It's making me think a couple of things. Um, and I'll tell it from a, a personal, my personal experience of coming to understand that, which is, so I was the director of education at MacArthur. Maybe when we first started working together, maybe 10, 10 years ago, so before Facebook, before the iPhone, it's at the very beginning. And my interest in education is really that I am passionate about social justice and I'm passionate about democracy and that I really think of ed our education and our school system as the core institution that is, is part of solving those problems. And so the MacArthur board, members of the MacArthur board came to me and said, we really think that you should uh, stop working in schools and start thinking about digital media and technology and how that's gonna change what learning looks like. And in my ultimate wisdom, I said, no, I have no interest in doing that. And I don't think that technology has anything to do with social justice or with democracy. And they were like, well, that's fine, but we want you to spend 50% of your time on this. So fortunately, they were much smarter than I. Because in my head, I was thinking about technology as the hardware and the infrastructure. And the next thing that um, one of my board members, John Seeley Brown, said to me was, you need to meet Patrick. And so I then spent two years spending both deep time with Patrick, but also with a couple of other folks in design schools to better understand design. Because as soon as you start taking a user-centered approach to understanding the problem, it, it immediately changes once, or at least it changed my frame of reference around schools. Because if you think about our school system, uh, and the last time it went through a massive transformation was at, at, during the shift from agricultural to industrial. So, so in many ways, Dewey lost that war of the progressives. Because if you think about how our educational system is organized and designed, it's actually beautifully designed. And it is one of the most sustainable designs of any system I think we have, which is to say it was designed to sort kids and it was designed to hold kids because we didn't know what to do with our kids as we were starting to move into industrial work. Adults needed to go and work. Kids were coming off of the farm. We had all of this social upheaval we wanted to control, we wanted to contain, and we wanted to sort the best to be able to go on and do a certain set of jobs and we wanted to sort others to do other kinds of jobs. Our system does that exceptionally well. As soon as you take a user-centered design approach, you think, oh my God, I would never have designed a learning opportunity for a young person in this way. I would never have designed, if we think about learning or if we think about education as something that is for the learner, and that is designed for kids as they're aging, it would never look anything like what we have currently designed. And so then that requires, from a design perspective, rethinking what are the core questions that we want to begin to tackle and solve without knowing what the outcome is. If what we care about is designing for the user, and the user is not the adult who's containing the kids, the user is the learner. And so that then for us raised whole, all sorts of questions of, well, of course the starting point has to be engagement, right? So how would you begin to design if what you care about is engaging the learner in addition to a whole set of other things? And then that made us think, so then what is the role of play? What is the role of story? So it, it raises a whole set of other questions and from a testing perspective, it leads you to start thinking about, oh, what I care about is getting the context of learning right. I'm not gonna test the kid or the learner to know whether or not this is useful. I actually need to start thinking about how do I hold the context accountable to being engaging? And so that then has led, for the last 10 to 12 years, an entirely different pursuit about thinking about how to reimagine learning. But that's what I meant by, we're asking the wrong questions. So you mean the learning system can fail instead of the kids mm -hmm. failing? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
I mean, I just think that's fascinating to think about that, you know, we, people are under a, an illusion that what they're doing is that they're there to, te to teach or their, their children are somewhere to learn when in fact it's completely built on uh, something entirely different well, and for a very different purpose. Well, and there are an enormous number of teachers doing incredible things, but you have, they're heroic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's part of what makes the teaching profession so unbelievably hard and difficult is that the system it doesn't actually support our teachers to do the things that they've been trained, that they want to do, that mm -hmm. they love to do, that they're passionate about. And the best ones, I think, are just truly heroic. So is that something that you are doing with your, your current gig? Yes, it is. And so part of it is, how do we think about what is an infrastructure how do you design a lightweight infrastructure that enables the kind that enables learning to blossom and grow? And so for us, as we continue to move in this continuum and worked with extraordinary people like Melissa and Patrick to sort of really experiment around these different kinds of engagement, then the next question is, we think about, we make education and school and learning synonymous. And we think that all learning happens within a particular building at a particular time of day and in a particular way. It turns out that learning is networked, that it exists within ecosystems, and that it has a whole different kind of set of design principles that it requires. So if you take learning from the perspective of an ecosystem, what is the infrastructure you'd create? And I think now, I think this is part of the reason I think this is one of the most pressing questions of our time is that for the first time in, the, in our history, we have the tools to do this. It's sort of what is the benefit of the digital media tools, is that we actually can create ecosystems for learning in ways that we've had siloed, fragmented, very rigid and structured systems that have uh, really fought to maintain average and are really designed around the average. We can now create ecosystems that support more personalized and connected learning than we than we ever have, and that's that's what uh, my current gig is about. And what makes it really hard is that when we see a new technology emerge, we envision its application through the lenses of what happened in the right. past. That's right. So we think of electronic books, and we think of um, interactive experiments on the computer, and really. Uh, we need to get through that phase as fast as possible and find the, the new medium. What we're doing is sort of racing forward while we're looking backwards. And when you look at the advances of media over the last 50 years, there have been four dimensions. Three of them are visible. We've made things easier to share, easier to create, and easier to find. So there are lots of contemporary examples, but going back to the Xerox machine up to Twitter, those three things have sped up. Mm -hmm. And now that they're so fast, we've discovered we've lost something that we didn't know was there, which was time for reflection. Mm -hmm. And of those four dimensions, it's quite possible reflection might be the most important. Uh, certainly, you can't learn without it. At least, I think certainly. Mm -hmm. um, and we've taken actions with media to do everything we can to speed it up, speed up sharing, finding, and creating. And at that time, we've taken away all the time that was, we used to think it was downtime, but it gave us time to think. But in terms of learning, those three things transform what learning looks like. Mm -hmm. um, so speed aside, if you think about traditional education, which is still, I mean, we're struggling, again, because of the system structures, uh, it is still very much dominated by consumption. Mm -hmm and by um, an expert delivering. delivering. Creating, sharing, and producing, because the, the cost and the bar and the ease has dropped so dramatically, if you think about what is the nature of participation and being able to shift from one to many, to many to many, and what that means for learning, mm -hmm. it's totally transformative. Mm -hmm. If you think about having dropped the bar on production, so that kids can become makers and creators at a low cost mm -hmm. in ways they've never been able to do and be able to learn in that way, it then again been, uh, enables us to rethink and, and create new questions about what learning can be. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Uh, in this, what we call reflection deficit disorder, I've been thinking, how do we overcome that? <laughs> yeah. And I, like I think one of the ways is to speed up reflection, which mm -hmm. sounds like an oxymoron. 
but in a way, design knows how to do that, and that's what early stage prototypes are. Right. We do early stage prototypes not to test for makeability. We do early stage pro prototypes to help us think about right. what we're doing. That's right. And in a sense, it's using making as a way of thinking, thinking. and reflecting that uh, design can help bring to the party of learning, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. So, so maybe we can build on this idea of reflection um, to talk, Melissa, a little bit about your work. Um, because it seems like what you're doing is, you know, you're taking this very applied approach um, where, and it's, it's really located, you know, um, in this idea of the specific learner in a particular context. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about making learning individually meaningful and then maybe expand that a little bit to the larger sort of community. Sure. Um, so, you know, my work started off really thinking about health. Um, and the health of young people and the health of communities. Um, I think one of the core driving principles, <coughs> I think it draws from what Connie's talking about with social justice, but it's um, the topic of, it, we call it structural violence, and it's a term in public health that comes from a practitioner named Paul Farmer. And what he, what he does is he connects sort of the sins of inequality um, and the wealth of some creates inequality for others, and that inequality means that many people live in resource-depleted um, places. And that, you know, so it's again sort of thinking not about health or poor health having to do with individuals' deficits, but really the larger systems that create poor health. And so um, one way of thinking about health is that it's what happens in the clinical setting, but really what creates health is many other things or many social factors, and one of the key points is, is education, access to education knowledge, um, but it's also living in systems that are less supportive and less, um, and, um, less supportive of one's well-being, and I think many of us can think about, you know, just what walking around this art museum does for you and your sense of your well-being, and then think about what living in a much more deficit or violent or uh, traumatic experience does. And so, at the individual level, we have to start to think about how do you restore health, how do you restore um, a sense of well-being, a sense of um, knowing who you are. And if you think about for so many young people, if they're living in systems that either seem to be unjust from an economic perspective or from a race or from a bias or for other things, and often that sense of inadequacy, I think, comes from what Connie is calling our broken school system. Um, you're not only not learning, not having a positive experience, but your sense of self-worth is really diminished. And that manifests itself in your health, right? It, it leads to stress, and then we have kind of this pathway called cortisol that actually leads to worse health outcomes. So my work is really about unpacking that and, and changing that and thinking about it differently. And so I ended up in the fields of art and storytelling and design. and. Um, and so we actually make games, which is something that I've been really grateful um, to Connie at supporting me intellectually, also um, financially in work where we're looking to understand how play can be a way to reshift and reform and have young people rethink, think differently about who they are because it kind of creates a place where a lot of the judgments are suspended. Um, it's a place where mistakes are okay. Um, I think for so many people, mistakes seem to be really a very bad thing, and yet it's such a part of learning and such a part of giving us an opportunity to reflect on experiences. So, you know, we often learn from things that go wrong. So um, play and games have been a really important part of the work. Um, not necessarily individual. I think one of the things that's also been really important um, in the and the game space has been that it is collective, and so it helps people start to rethink and reimagine relationships. The other part that's been really important has been narrative. Um, part of that is really trying to use narrative to bridge um, gaps. Um, we see this all the time in healthcare that um, I think I understand your situation and I'm prescribing, but what I've really done is given you like you know, 10 or 15 very pat questions that you have to respond to. And it works very, very well for disease and diagnosis, but not so much for understanding the other human being and sort of those social and other contexts that might be driving health. 
And so um, I use storytelling. Um, I just returned from India which my, um, on Tuesday, which means I'm still a little bit blurry, but um, using narrative to cross very important lines of gender and class and economic status with young people growing up in urban slums um, and suddenly disempowering them through um, learning to tell stories about themselves and, and repositioning really traumatic events as, as um, almost heroic events. Um, is I think kind of the sweet spot or the, the power of story. And then the last is um, we work in design and um, we're lucky enough to find people from, who've graduated from ID to really help us um, think about how do we reframe health from the user experience, right? How do we start to not intervene from my perspective as a physician, but from based on your experiences and the resources that you have or don't have. And then what happens to um, the person as they experience this ability to sort of redesign. And so I sort of started off with this idea that some structures are violent, but what if you think about your ability to redesign them and to rethink them and um, use them differently? So that's sort of the cycle that we, we move through in our work. I just want to highlight that there's obviously a ton in what you just said. Uh, Part of what I wanted to highlight, though, as we think about both laboratories <coughs> and education, is that sort of in listening to Melissa describe that work, it was about health, it was about medicine, it was about design, it was about games. Um, the, when we think about sort of the moment that we're in and the opportunity to rethink learning and education, um, all of the work that I've done has, has just really pointed to and comes out of understanding that innovation happens at the adjacencies of where the problem lies, but the adjacencies of all of those other areas that are relevant to it, but are not of it. And so part of what has been so extraordinary in working with M Melissa and her team is that the, there's this intersection of all of these extraordinary expertise none of which are necessarily right. deep within the education system, right. but you're collaborating with folks in the education system to think about things in an inside-out way. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, we were just, um, I was just talking kind of on my, part of my walk here was talking about a project that we just started in the schools on the issue of sexual violence. Um, and, you know, typically that's taught in a very didactic way, you know, kind of don't do this, um, don't do that. but. Um, we designed a game around it, and it just we just started implementing um, with um, people from the Y. And what we're finding very unexpectedly is just this, um, that the game having characters, suddenly you can now discuss this really complicated issue from the game perspective. Why did they say this to that? And suddenly you're no longer implicated. And so now you have young people, you have, um, people being able to cross, talk across genders of these very, you know, kind of, it's, it's basically mediated by the fact that you're playing mm -hmm. um, and discussing. And so, um, but we would never have arrived at that moment if we had just stayed in health, right? Health right. does not think about games to solve problems if we had just, Same but if my time. colleague had just um, stayed in, uh, in his world of design and if um, we didn't have people who could help us come into education, mm -hmm. so. Your, your spot. It, it's where the, yeah. The, yeah. yeah. So Connie, do you, do you know when learning was separated from life? Daily life. <laughs> it has, do you have a particular answer to that with no, the moment? No. I do not. I think, Is that a trick question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's been a progression. Mm -hmm. And I think it really has been when we, when we moved into the industrial age and created the public high school. Yeah was really a, a turning point for how we thought about learning. I'm guessing it's about the same time that we created the job. Yes. And we see the job going away. Yep. And we see the learning system decaying. That's right. Maybe we should figure out a way of helping it decay faster. <laughs> uh, we want to speed that one up. Yeah, exactly. So I think, um, you know, we're already starting to touch on a lot of these topics, but obviously we had a huge event today with the Cubs parade, right? But we have another really big, important, momentous event coming up next week with the presidential election. Um, can any of you um, relate our conversation to uh, what we should be thinking about for Tuesday? Eric, 
you're first. <laughs> you want to go very much? With you. <laughs> I know we're ready to answer another question. <laughs> I know where my Canadian passport is. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I was. <laughs> that's very interesting. I mean, I, I do think, in a way, some of the rhetoric we're hearing in the election is, you know, to really generalize is the, you know, we're not. We're not necessarily aware of, we're, we, become, um, we become detached from the way we speak and we concentrate on what we say as a fact, but we're not aware of how we say it. In other words, we could apply this to learning. We, we, um, we become aware of learning as a set of information that we can measure and not that we're actually learning from the system in which learning happens. What we're learning as students is, is what to question, what not to question, what to think about, how to, you know, what not to think about by what we do learn how to question, that we actually, what we actually often teach and learn are mechanisms of, of, of learning, but it's not made explicit. So someone like Paolo Freire might say, you know, how do we learn how to learn? I mean, how do we learn while we're making the road by going? And there's something like the election seems to, a lot of the rhetoric seems to suspend, um, um, it, one, it frames, you know, an I know, and I'm going to sort of, in a heroic fashion, let's say from, one of the candidates do this for you. I'm going to sort of take the responsibility of telling you what, 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 what's right, what's wrong. We're not going to come to this through a dialogue. We're not going to come to this and kind of create solutions necessarily together. I mean, again, I'm really generalizing. But um, where I think there are, I think, let's say, uh, other people running that are trying to say, look, we, we need to make, we need to use the discourse of what needs to happen, and we need to come to this together. It's not going to be something that a single person is going to offer us a solution. It's going to be something that emerges out of the questions themselves. Um, so the context of shaping now containers in which questions can be, questions like gender and race and politics can be talked about directly um, with sensitivity, not with um, this kind of flagrant disrespect and framing it in terms of um, how, how is it framed now. It's um, being politically sensitive, these kinds of things. I, I, it's just really frustrating. I think the way these things are being talked about themselves are not allowing uh, conversations to take place. I don't know about the rapid deterioration, like if we should accelerate the deterioration of our learning system so that they kind of cave in. Um, I think it's, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to sort of back off at that. That's great. Yeah, no, we, I don't think we want them to deteriorate until we have a vision of what would replace them. Hmm. Um, but so. In education circles, and for me as an educator, it is hard to be a part of and to witness this election without thinking that our education system has failed horribly, right? I mean, it's, it's at the core of our democracies, our educational system, and this is a broken election. It is just, like, it is, it is sort of an anti-democratic. And where it makes me think is, um, not only does it make me and, it, and you know, what is our, what is Rom famous for? In every, in every crisis, there's an opportunity. So what is the opportunity that this is affording us, particularly when we think about learning? For me, where it's led me to, as I've been sort of reflecting on this a lot, is that sort of at the turn of the century, during the Enlightenment, we really, we really have, dis we, at that moment, the notion of trust was placed in scientific expertise, and it was placed in experts. And our teachers, and that translated into our educational system in terms of our teachers standing up, being the expert that could then share knowledge with the student. We are now at a time in this massive transition of not knowing who to trust, not knowing which institutions we can trust. And so we tend, I think, to trust only those who share our ideologies and to not be able to sort of move past that chasm. And so I think actually the crisis right now is a crisis of trust. And where are we going to begin to think about what are our new trusted spaces, our new ways of creating trust across different communities and across different conversations? Because we've lost it in our institutions, we've lost it in our political figures, and we've lost it in the scientific method. We're not, we're not owning truth anymore. And so I think the real crisis is how are we going to define and, and understand what trust means in the 21st century and, and in relation to our democracy? Not sure those are all equal, right? I think um, the scientific method, right? Mm -hmm. It's it, right. Yeah, that's a, a truth. Yeah. Right? Um, I think part of that, 
But I think part of what gets us to where we are is something that you and I both value, right, is this idea of making knowledge accessible to all people, the fact that things that were often sort of the domain of just an elite are now available to many more people. It's sort of what we've talked about when um, we see young people as makers that you know so many people can share in this conversation. So there's this really wonderful part of this that um, many more people are involved, many more people are communicating. The challenge is that this sort of you know, myopic truth becomes becomes a truth, mm -hmm. um, and that your own sort of your own lens or your own idea of something could somehow can refute what is you know as apparent as scientifically as climate change. You can choose not to believe in it because mm -hmm. it's what you feel or it's your own truth. Mm -hmm. So it is this kind of funny moment where we have. You know, all of these wonderful possibilities have opened up because of technology, because of access to knowledge ability. Yep. But then there's also this ability to only take it and only drink in this very small amount of information that you decide wants to, is the information you want. Mm -hmm. to when mass want media to was still strong, we knew who the editors were and the curators were of the content. Yep. We've changed the sources of the content, but we haven't found the new curators or editors. Mm -hmm. Um, we should start by finding uh, the growth industry I would like to see happen is fact checkers. Because yes. surely 98% of the stuff we see on the web is either mistakes or lies, right. or at least right. hyperbole. And also, you know, as you move from kind of broadcasting to narrow casting, right, it's not a shared truth anymore. And so you can get into your own world of right. uh, this very specific truth that isn't necessarily the shared moment, which is, you know, as we talked about, you know, sort of the beauty of the Cubs game, right, or the beauty of sports is this moment where it's a shared moment that all happened at the same time and all watched it at the mm -hmm. same time, and we've lost these, as many of these mm -hmm. moments of shared truths. Yeah. I, I and I really think that in the trust spaces come together in this way. I mean, we have someone like um, Chantal Mouffe. She's a political theorist, philosopher. She writes about agonistic practices and agonistic spaces rather than antagonistic. I mean, and essentially she, she, she talks about the need to preserve. We don't need to necessarily agree. We need to be able to preserve spaces of difference where we can come together and not necessarily have to leave having found some, something that we haven't a resolution that we all kind of have a consensus on. We mm -hmm. actually need to design and preserve mechaniz uh, kind of the mechan mechanizations um, around which differences can be cultivated, differences can actually be amplified. And in that, you get these ecologies of, uh, of you know, you think of ecological systems. The most robust ecological systems are like <coughs> on edges where water meets land. Mm -hmm. You get, you know, you get these really um, eco tones that are sort of hitting each other at these, um, at these overlapping edges and boundaries that are kind of deep boundaries. And there you get the most robust kind of um, uh, expressions of life seeking and selecting and sort of in, this, in these bloomings. And so, you know, where can, we, where can we do that in our schools? Where can we do that in our, let's say, laboratories, if we're using this word? But, but you know, it has to go into the, it has to go into a space of, um, it has to go into a space of where trust matters, where we can, where trust can be, trust of not knowing what you're going to produce and the way you're going to measure what you produce and the processes you're going to go through to do it. You're not just kind of in the trap we are now of the standardized, easy, looking for easy ways to quantify things that are, uh, that need to preserve the uncertainty of, of being together. Um, Except sometimes where water meets land, you call it a tsunami. And there are, it's hard to imagine the, in the current political debate, people sitting down and having a discussion about um, the way we treat women, for example. I mean, some, from, from my isolated, singular, mm -hmm. uh, siloed point of view, some things are just wrong and aren't debatable. And I think this election is really pointing out the difference in that in this country. I mean, it's very different from the old-line conservative argument against the old-line liberal argument, you know, the Nixon versus Kennedy, or um, you can go back even, even to, uh, you know, the 
election of Reagan. There were, there were reasonable arguments and people could have debates. You may disagree with them or not. But we seem to have passed the threshold into unreasonableness. But where I mean, but but I mean, I think in the context also of the of the planet. I mean, you know, there are seventy five to seventy seven countries in the world now where um, being gay is punishable by death or you know extended life terms in prison. I mean, when we talk about you know, I mean, very it's how you know how to be. I mean, I, I really agree that, that these are issues here. How do we also um, talk about here, not to by any means condone the behavior that we're seeing now in the US, but I like this idea of the broad, narrow, narrowing the broad. I don't know how you put it. <laughs> broad casting. Broad narrow casting. <laughs> I mean, somehow we have to do both at the same time. How do we see, you know, so I, I'm working to set up two, um, uh, education systems now, one in Iceland with the deans of an art academy and the dean of an engineering at uh, the University of Iceland, as well as a new, we're, we actually call it Learning Academy in Greece in Thessaloniki, where they, their narrative, self-frame narrative is crisis, and they sort of define themselves, they accept that narrative and, and define themselves in it. So we have created uh, two, I mean, I call these radical imagination communities, but you know, we're trying to essentially understand the terms of that's happening in these countries and where learning and education, how, how the, the participants in it, we don't call each other students, um, how the participants in it can shape the systems that they're learning. So there is issues of democracy, citizenship, how we can you know, uh, design the spaces we live in rather than just use them and kind of consume them. But also the ideas. So you know, the, how we can maybe not too quickly, how do we not just generalize um, it's really hard to talk about, I think, issues of gender and race and, um, and sexual orientation without polarizing each other, without, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, there's something. Yeah, we, um, it's something that we are dealing with a lot at the University of Chicago right now, this um, kind of the core value that we hold of freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. And how do you start? How do you hold that in a very diverse um, setting? And you know, part of the way that we think about how we get great ideas is diversity, right? We need lots of different people, but um, how do you hold those things in equipoise, right? How do you have both of those in a way that um, you know people can become un can be comfortable with being uncomfortable? I think one of the things that um, I've really enjoyed about games and one of the first projects that I did with uh, Connie was to turn the campus into a game space and we created a big overarching narrative and had um, 140 youth spend five weeks. But that narrative, I think again, this sort of mediator um, force that there was story and narrative and something to drive and games to play. Um, we really took on huge issues. We talked about issues of race and sexual orientation and sexual identity and inequality, but um, it wasn't at that personal level. And so, um, and so it was really a story-driven game, but I think that there, there has to be um, sort of these places and these moments where we can suspend um, you know, some of the full weight of what these issues are so that we can create a place where we can discuss it. I mean, I, I think it, we are going to have to learn to do this again um, because now, because right now it is such a polarizing, such a polarizing topic. So I want to make sure that we um, have time for a couple of questions from the audience. And there are mics set up in the aisles. So if, if, you, if you need those, um, please make your way to the aisle to ask a question or you can project from your seat and I'll try to restate if needed. Can I just bring up one? Because it's the one. It's one of the pieces in the Mahali exhibition that I love is the wooden uh, uh, pieces that you he made. I think in court, in conjunction with a blind trainers, a school. What are they? Feelies. I love it. I mean, because in a sense, maybe this is where we need to be to re, to rehab these conversations. I mean, the idea that these are not just the fabrication of them and sort of them as the the object, but that. You would close your eyes, and everyone puts their hands on them, and yeah, the feel, the feels, the feelies. But I mean, if we go back to the root, you know, the, the word empathy translates in German, it's einfühlung, it's in feeling. 
How do we actually get in feeling with these systems and with these objects? And I think part of the learning, at least that inspires me the most about the, the ex ex exhibition, is that sense of, you know, you're, you're, you're creating, you're, you're renegotiating the terms of how you perceive the world. But to, to close your eyes with a group of people and sort of, that's a trust in a way. Yeah. And, and where can we do that in our academic system? Yeah. Those wonderful wooden objects were made by our freshmen every year. Those are the feeling objects? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> that's very cool. Question. Yes? Um, to your point of regards to uh, when you were referring to um, about data points, and uh, I think we're kind of going with a, like, almost like a data science uh, aspect of, of um, when you were sorry, speaking of learners to users, that correspondence there. My background is computer science and, and, and data science is kind of an aspect of it. And content management is actually a major uh, umbrella. And it does lead itself into trusted sources and what is tr what is truth and fact checking. Who what what actually proves the facts to be the source of those uh, um, of who's actually fact checking and where, what point of view is that being a fact? Is it you know are you noticing it by eyes, ears, or what would it constitute that being a fact? So going down to a level of to to find out the source of truth in regards to you know, the data points to bring it all the way up to uh, a consumable object to act upon, such as uh, like a report on maybe uh, children and schools in regards to, or maybe violence in Chicago, but you bring it down from the fact level of what is a source, where is a trusted source, and then build upon that to come to a conclusion of a uh, reporting or some sort of a a point of view where we don't have pre, a predisposition in regards to what that, that outcome may be. I would just wonder if you could discuss a little bit about, about that. Unless I completely missed the point. <laughs> so is, is the point, um, what's the role of data science in this issue of finding facts? And uh, the, the data science aspect is, well, you know, uh, like, in, like in big data and that you're, you're building upon a massive amount of data and then you're building out like, um, oh, uh, you, what may be um, termed as maybe even like hot spots of issues in regards of, of certain activities or then you could kind of act upon that. Uh, you'll see that in regards to even our uh, city of Chicago does that for the uh, for the police department and that. So they'll do hot spots of certain activity and they'll, and you'll go down and check this checklist of different types of activity that are going in different areas. So they're how, that's how they determine where police should go here or there. So now that being said, is there's a context as well, which I mean, we're bringing up a lot of the points that you guys were bringing and then kind of bringing my, back, my experience into what you're saying and I could see how that would all fit. But it all comes down to what is the fact. Now, um, about what is the, the, the trusted uh, source of the facts. So that, that was kind of where I was going with it. So I have two quick responses. One is my sense that companies and government agencies now without the big data ability have more data than they can possibly use yeah. or analyze. I think they, they're awash in data. And giving them more data isn't going to make them better analysts. So I think we need new ways of understanding it. In design, we have this concept of, of it's better to be roughly right than precisely wrong. <laughs> and I think the whole, rule, the whole pattern of working in agile computing and lean computing, lean development, and in big data is the importance of context. Um, if you get the context right, then you can do a lot with data analysis. If you get the context wrong, you can be precisely wrong. Right. can be missing the point with great right. deal of accuracy. And that brings up to the point of the reflection versus shares, sharing, finding, and... and uh, reflection helps you think about whether you're in the right space or not. <laughs> the classic right. example is the 311 calls. Um, so um, as you're saying, the, the local city government wanted to make a lot of data available and sort of said, oh, you know, much of this could be open. We could solve all sorts of problems. Why don't we look at the 311 calls? And it was supposed to be this idea that you could find the hot spots for where um, different issues were happening. 
But what people forgot was that there are so many communities that have given up on the 311 system, like this idea that there could be someone who's going to call you to help with this sort of not so serious problem. So if you just looked at the data and not the context and not exactly. the individuals behind it, you'd walk away thinking, oh, all the problems happen, you know, whatever, name your community rather than this community. Right. Right. Pothole problem. Right. Yeah. right. And it's just, no, they've given up. Yeah. Other questions? Patrick, you made a, an interesting observation about, or in that question, when does uh, learn, when was learning separated from life? Mm -hmm. uh, and Connie, you're working in sort of a, a, trying to disrupt the uh, the education system, perhaps making that next big shift like happened before. It seems like a pretty big thing. So um, you know, so many other things that so many other influences on it. We're, how do we make that kind of a change? And you know, I know design is in one, at one level, but politics and decision making is a very different level. And how do we get from here to there? And, and who's doing it? My short, glib answer is doing lots of experiments to find ways that seem to work better than what we've got and to share that information. But you probably have something less glib. Uh, or equally short, I hope is um, I, th I think that it is uh, really hard to do innovation and make change happen in high-risk contexts where you're taking care of other people's kids. And so I actually don't think that we're going to make the change happen in our schools first. And so I think that in the, I think that it is the space outside of schools and as we're building the ecosystem approach that we ultimately will enable schools to change, but I think we first have to turn to our cities and our communities and really think hard about learning as an ecosystem and not be overly focused on how do we change the school. I, I was, I, I had a really, um, I really like this idea of bringing life and learning actually back together. I mean, I think it's a much, my experience is, is it's a little bit harder to do here in the US, let's say. I mean, I. I had a very nice opportunity for five years um, in Berlin. I got to open a school very much like the new Bauhaus um, with Olafur Eliasson. And it was affiliated with the University of the Arts, but we were basically given an enormous amount of trust and a decent amount of money from the, from the Berlin Senate and from the Einstein Foundation. And the big catch was they said, you know, what the, the terms were, we didn't have to justify how we spent it as we spent it. We would get evaluated halfway and then at the end. But what we ended up doing was we were able to live experiments together as a five-year project in, in learning, as a lab in a way. So we could move literally you know, for 10 weeks. Um, we moved to Addis Ababa and set up a satellite school in the university there with the fine art department. And I brought my eight-week-old son and my partner, and we live together with 22 young artists from everywhere, really, and worked with artist groups and, and uh, um, uh, professors, and as well as politicians there, of course, this all had to be part of it. But we lived it. I mean, there the living and the learning did allow something else to emerge. And I, I, find, I find it, coming back to the US, I mean, now I've been kind of moving from city to city for the past three years looking for a home. And it's very difficult just because of um, insurance reasons, liability reasons, accountability reasons. I mean, we can't have, what I, was, I was teaching at Cornell two years ago, you couldn't, we were under contract, you couldn't go out to dinner with students. You couldn't sit down and have an informal conversation in a context with students because there was so much liability around drinking and the perception of what could happen if it went wrong and, I, and it had in the past and these things do get exploited. But I mean, I haven't been a part of any teaching system, formal graduate or undergraduate system in the US where those, the terms of even just being together are relaxed to allow the informal play or reflection to happen outside of, we have one hour to be responsible for the amount of time we have and the amount of money this costs and we have to be able to quantify what you get out of it afterwards or, you know, and um, these terms are gonna, these terms make it very difficult for learning and living to, merge together. That's interesting that you say that because that's not our experience at yeah. the Institute of Design. I feel like we must be lucky. Because um, <laughs> I, mean, I teach at IIT now. Yeah. We, you know, yeah. the, 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 we, it's very hard to do these huh. things. Um, um, 
So I have one final question because we're coming up on time and anyone can take a stab at it. Um, but we've touched on a lot of really complex, meaty, um, problematic areas from education to government to um, you know, health and, and other questions. Um, my question is WWMND, which is what would Mahoney Naj do? Um. <laughs> do experiments in totality. We'd look at the whole system and do lots of experiments. Anyone else? Without a particular intention in mind. Without a particular result in mind. Mm -hmm. There'd be an intention, not a result. I'll go with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you all very much for your, your time today. That's great.